Hi guys, welcome back. This is episode 13 of the Footy Pod. And today I have on a guest, his name is Abdul Adlu. Abdul is the youth coach for the Dallas Texans 2010 boys, 2011 girls teams. And also helps out with some 2009 boys and 2012 girls teams. Uh, Abdul and I got to know each other through taking a coaching course together. Um, and he's just someone I've stayed in touch with. I know he has some amazing stories to tell when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, a playing experience. He's pretty much seen it all and really seen what it takes to play at the highest level in some soccer rich cultures like Bolivia and Brazil and Germany. So um, I knew he'd be a great guest to have on and he did not disappoint. Um, so hopefully you guys can take some value out of it. Um, if you do, please leave feedback. You know, feedback is definitely valued. Uh, and so, yeah, just hope you enjoy. Abdul Adlu, welcome to the show, sir. How's it going? I'm going pretty good. I'm going pretty good. Um, you know, appreciate you taking the time out of your day. I know that you're working full time and still trying to maintain the soccer thing. So, yes, much appreciated, man. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on. You know, I'm willing to talk soccer anytime. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about soccer. We're going to talk about a lot more, too. I know you have a lot to share, which is one of the reasons why I uh, hit you up. Uh, actually, Evan was the one that told me to go ahead and reach out to you. I hadn't thought about it before. Obviously, you know, you would have been the first person I would reach out to. Uh, we met a couple years back at the the D license. We took that course together, and um, we were put in the same group, actually, and Right away, I just thought, you know, uh, you're a pretty cool guy, you know, like, so I was looking forward to getting to know you more, but I do remember coaching against you one time before that, and all I remember taking away from that game is just you berating this one kid, telling him, I don't know, (laughs) I I think he was out of position or something, and you told him to get his butt wide and, like, not say (laughs) terms. And so I brought that up to you at the coaching course, and you were just like, oh, yeah, that was my son. I was like, oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> so do you still coach your son? Do you still give him a hard time? I have two. Um, I do not coach my older one. He plays for uh, Kevin Salazar now, and but I do coach my younger one, who's a 2010. Okay, very cool. So, But there was a time where you passed him on to somebody else, and now you're coaching him again, right? Yes. Um, uh about a year and a half ago or maybe a year ago, I just, you know, I'm, I'm real passionate about soccer and, you know, I know, I know a lot of parents are, and sometimes you just have to take a step back and do what's best for the child. Sure. And I thought at the moment was, you know, just let somebody else, you know, I let my, I I grew up with Albert Herrera who coaches with kicks, um, is a great friend of mine. I just thought, Hey, I'm going to let Albert handle him. And then we'll revisit the situation, you know, six months from now. I, you know, and I, I think it was a great decision by me. Yeah. So that's what I was about to ask. Do you feel like, you know, you guys were able to, 
develop a better like father son relationship during that time, which led yeah, to absolutely. being able to coach him again. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really the only reason that I did it yeah. at the moment, you know, because uh, growing up, I had my, my father was one of my coaches and uh, he and I have talked long and hard, you know, since then we both matured and, you know, we and we both discussed the situation and we both agreed, you know, that, you know, sometimes it's OK to let let somebody else, you know, step in and take the reins. Yeah. Definitely. How long have you been actually coaching? Okay, so I've been with uh, the Texans organization. Uh, my father started it with Hassan back in 93. My Texans team was the first, one of the first, you know, four or five teams that we had that year uh-huh. back in 93. And so uh, growing up, I just kind of was uh, under my father's wing the entire time, uh, as a player and also uh, as I got older into my late teens and early twenties as a, as an assistant coach. And then uh, around, around my mid twenties, early twenties, I got into full time uh, as a head coach. Okay. Um, back in, back in the late nineties, uh, the Texans didn't have a youth academy. All they did were select teams. So my father and I, we had our own youth academy. It was called world-class soccer academy. And basically we would work with players three times a week. And most of our boys, once they got of select age would, would feed into the Texans program. Gotcha. So they were mostly like in that six to 10 age range, the, the kids yeah. involved in your the, class soccer academy. Yes. The foundation range. Gotcha. Gotcha. And it was, was that the brand that you operated under whenever you trained Evan back in the day? Uh, no, I was a, by then I was pretty much a full blown, full time, full time Texans coach. Okay, cool. Well, definitely want to get back to kind of where you're at right now and what you're doing and okay. what kind of led up to that. But I know you have a lot to talk about in your youth career. You're, you're a veteran, not only in a military sense, but also just in the Dallas soccer community. Were you born here in Dallas? I was born in Shreveport. Okay. Um, my dad started a club in Shreveport called Shreveport Football Club. And uh, he had, and uh, at the time in the 80s, Hassan was coaching with uh, Storm, I believe, Dal- uh, Dallas Storm. And he and Hassan were friends through, um, you know, both, both, uh, he's Persian and Hassan is Persian. So they knew each other through, uh, Iran. And so, uh, my dad decided, you know, it would be better all around for my family to just up and move from Shreveport to Dallas because, because you knew, you know, Dallas, at, Dallas at the time was like a major soccer youth soccer hub. Sure. And so the sport was growing and growing and, um, we we used to come to Dallas Cup. We used to drive to Dallas Cup from Shreveport back in the eighties, and uh, we would t- I would take a week off from school, and we would come spend a week in Dallas, watch soccer all week, then drive back to Louisiana on Monday or late Sunday night. And uh, you know, after after several years, it, the decision was made. Hey, we need to just go ahead and move to Dallas because this is where it's at. And so you were how old at that time? Um, I was 10 years old. I just finished my fifth grade 
in Shreveport. And uh, my father, actually, my father had made friends with um, one one team. There was a team from South America called Taiwichi. They were from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. They would come to Dallas Cup. And I remember they had won the super group like four years in a row. Jeez. And so I, yeah, my, uh, my father made friends with the president of their club. And so um, after my fifth grade year, I, w- I went down to uh, Bolivia, Santa Cruz, Bolivia, as a 10-year-old. And uh, my father took me down there. He was there for a week with me, and then he left, and I stayed with a, I lived with a Bolivian family. And I stayed there all summer. And then when I flew back home to the United States, I had found out that my family had moved from Louisiana to Dallas. Hold on. And my slow dad. Down, slow down. There's a lot going on just right here in this <laughs> this first year so you're 10 yeah. years old and your dad just leaves you in Bolivia what yeah. was what was the whole process in making this decision how did you feel about it at the time you know as a as a 10 year old kid who loved soccer I, once I got down to Bolivia it was a it was just an eye-opening experience for me yeah um I mean it the moment you you leave the airport it's just it's a completely different world you know yeah and um being there as a 10 year old i mean i it was weird because i was like a a celebrity almost going down there these bolivian people are like what is this american kid doing what does he want here and then uh they saw i had you know pretty good soccer abilities and so i kind of fit right in nice and so you stayed there the whole summer. You were training with a team. Yeah, I was training. It's called uh, the Taiwichi Academy. Okay. And they're actually uh, pretty well renowned in South America. Their youth academy is. They uh, they travel a lot around the world. They win a lot of youth soccer tournaments. And uh, like I said at the time, they were just they were killing it in the super group at Dallas Cup. And so um, that was just the the. As far as the uh, youth soccer in Latin America, that was the place to be at the time. And they had all age groups from U10 up through the U18, U19 team? Yeah, U19. And once they got to U19, they would feed them into the professional teams throughout uh, Bolivia and the rest of South America. Gotcha. So they didn't have a first team actually attached to their academy? No, they were – they're um, – they're they're pretty much almost like a charity organization. They do a lot of work with impoverished kids in Bolivia. There's a lot of orphans in Santa Cruz. Okay. And so they would do a lot of work with taking kids off the streets. Cool. Very cool. So what was that summer like for you? Um, like I said, it was an eye-opening experience. Um, I started uh I started to learn to speak Spanish. I'm now fluent in Spanish. Um, I learned to read it and write it. I learned that there's a whole other world out there besides what we see here in the United States. Definitely. So right then, like you just kind of fell in love with the soccer culture and you wanted to to experience more. Absolutely. And uh, I I celebrated my 11th birthday down there. There were hundreds of Bolivian kids that showed up to my birthday party. That's awesome. Um, yeah, they were, it's a, you know, 
Huh? The Latin culture, the people are very humble, accepting. Yeah. They love to party. Um, so it, it was great. I got to play, you know, in Bolivia, they have the professional games. Before the professional games, they usually bring out youth teams to play. And so as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, I got to play, one, you know, a game in the stadium before a professional team with like 10,000, 15,000 people sitting in the stands. That's awesome. What, yeah, it was great. You're a little kid, man. And and that that probably just like triggered right there that spark to be, you know, to want to like experience professional soccer. Absolutely. Yeah. So that summer you went through training at a high level. Um, and then that was the summer that you guys transitioned from Shreveport to Dallas. Yeah, I flew back home and uh, my father and my mother picked me up from the airport. And they said, oh, by the way, we have uh, moved to Dallas. <laughs> How'd you feel about that? Do you have a lot of um behind? Uh, I had a few friends, but, you know, soccer it was my passion at the time. And I just knew that, hey, Dallas is where where we needed to be. Yeah, you'll have a bigger opportunity. Absolutely. So then him moving to Dallas was the beginning of Texans. Almost. Uh, this was around 1990. And so I began playing with a team called a club called Dallas Hornets. Okay. And their, their director of coaching at the time was Shellis Hyman, who later went on to be uh, FC Dallas's coach. So I played with Dallas Hornets for a couple of years. And uh, my father was coaching for Dallas Inner at the time. And Dallas Center, I think, later on, you know, fell under FC Dallas. So my father was coaching for Dallas Center for about three years. And then uh, in 1993, after him and Hassan had, uh, you know, talked it over and uh, made arrangements, they decided to form Dallas Texans. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but there was a Houston Texans before there was a Dallas Texans. And I can give you kind of the backstory as to how Dallas Texans was formed because of Houston Texans. Yeah. So when I was, so when, uh, in the eighties, when I was coming, uh, to Dallas cup, uh, in 88, I had, uh, I had actually befriended a few of the boys on the U 16 U S youth national team. And I was only eight, eight years old at the time. And I was hanging out with these teenagers and one of them said, Hey, you know, we want, we want you to go out onto the field with us for warmups and, and, you know, you go through the national anthem and whatnot. We'll get you a Jersey and everything. I was like, all right, you know, that, that sounds kind of cool to me. Yeah. And so, and so I was like, Hey, you know, I, I ran it by my parents. My dad's like, yeah, go for it. So, uh, um, the, the coach of the youth national team at the time, they, they go get the equipment manager and they find me a, a Jersey. And I actually still have pictures from that, that Dallas cup, but they let me walk out onto the field as an, uh, as an eight year old with the youth national team. And, uh, it was a, there was a semifinal game in Dallas cup and they had, they had lost to Taiwichi in the, in the super group finals, which was the team from Bolivia that I later linked up mm -hmm. with. And so uh, the coach of the U.S. Youth uh, National Team at the time was the director of coaching for Houston Texans down in Houston. Okay. And uh, 
he he told my dad he's like hey it was a it, you know it was a spiritual uplift for our team to have your son walk out onto the field with us as his mascot you know dressed in the you know dressed in the US national team uniform we would like to have him travel with us to the uh, FIFA Youth World Cup in Canada that's awesome and so, yeah, and so I got that later on that summer after Dallas Cup, I got to go to Canada with the national team and walk out onto the field with them. And so uh, you like the team coach for the yeah. I mean, I stayed in the hotel with the team. You know, I actually roomed with Claudia Reyna what? at Dallas Cup one year. Unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience, and and. The, the coach of the youth national team at the time, he was the, like I said, he was the Texans, Houston Texans director of coaching. You know, in 93, he, he told my dad and Hassan, hey, we need to form the Dallas division. And, and that's kind of how it came about. I know the, the coach, Roy Reese, he's the one that was coaching the national team and the Houston director of coaching at the time. He passed away in 2011. And I, I think with the MLS takeover with Dynamo, you know, and everything, it probably just, I'm not, I'm not even sure if there's a Houston Texans division anymore. So, okay. Then how old were you whenever Dallas Texans started and did you go to Texans right away as a player? No, I was, I was, I was 13, 13 or 14. I was 14 in 93 and the and the year before Texans started, um, my dad had a team, the 79s. We were called Dallas Dynamo, and, and this was like the original Texans team. And uh, my father was the coach at the time. And unfortunately, I got cut from that team you, by my dad. Dad cut you? Yes. Wow, that is rude. <laughs> what was his reason? My, uh, my mom was not happy with him at the time either. <laughs> so he didn't have a reasoning uh he he um said i wasn't ready and i actually had to play with a dallas inner team that was a couple years older than i was really so yeah wow so i was having to play up and fight for my playing time and i wasn't getting a lot of it but so that it it made that definitely t- it made me better. Yeah, yeah, toughen you up playing up a couple of age groups. But was was the was his team a really high level team? They were. Yeah. So you, did you? And you were ready. I always think I'm ready. I think all. I think I think every player that plays thinks they're always ready. Yeah. Well, and. Uh, that's true, but then there are also some that just struggle with confidence, and maybe they they could be ready, but they don't think that they're ready, and so that keeps right. back. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so you always had the confidence. I did. Yeah. So then you went over to Dallas Inter, played up. Was it two years? Yes, a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and then after, uh, and you were just one battling. Season. You were just battling to get on the pitch, huh? Yeah, and I remember I would get picked on a lot in practices and in games, you know, even even by my own teammates sometime in practice and then by opposition in games. But yeah. it, it just 
you know, you develop thick skin and it makes you tougher. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make the light of that situation for sure. So how, how many years did you play with that team? Uh, I was there, I think one or two seasons. And then I went back, finally got onto the Texans team and then uh, remained there pretty much throughout the rest of my, you know, my years. You had something to prove coming back to your dad's team, huh? Definitely. Yeah, I bet you had a chip on your shoulder. And there were a lot of good players on that team. I think at the time we had six players on the national team pool, the youth national in the youth national team pool. Wow, just on our team. So you're getting to like 15, 16 years old now, where that stuff is getting serious. Yes. Okay, and. What was the what was the local competition like at the time? Um, Dallas, like I said, Dallas at the time was uh, still one of the biggest, you know, soccer soccer areas you could be in. Um, and Classic League only had ten teams; there weren't two or three divisions. Um, and you either played Classic or you didn't. Uh, so it was Classic League or Rec, basically. Yes. Okay. I think Plano Plano uh, Plano Soccer Association had a had a league at the time, maybe one division, but it was either Classic Plano or Rec. Gotcha. And so, were you guys always towards the top of Classic League, or where did you guys? Yeah, we would. Yeah, we were. Uh, my Texans team. I mean, we would. Back then, I don't know how they do it now, but, you know, they have the grand champions. They'll have the fall season champions. They'll have spring season champions, and then they have grand champions, which is, you know, the combination of fall and spring. And I remember so many times we had accumulated so many points in the fall season. It it just really didn't matter what our results were in the spring that we had one grand champion anyway. Because you were automatic champions in the spring? Yes. That's crazy. <laughs> So it was nice because the reserves got to play a lot towards the end of the season. Yeah. So then what did you guys do to continue to challenge yourselves? Because, you know, obviously you can do, you know, regional, national tournaments. But um, at that time, was there a lot of travel? No. And kids today are so lucky. Yeah. Because they have so many opportunities, so many tournaments, so many leagues to play in. You know, back in the 90s, it was you play classic. You had to wait till the end of your season. You you got to pick up a tournament here and there, maybe travel once or twice a year. You know, regionals, if you if you won state cup, nationals, if you won regionals. And that was it. So you guys didn't really get to challenge yourselves at all. Um, You know, we got to go to uh, Tampa. There was a big tournament in Tampa in the 90s called the Sun Bowl. Okay. We went, you know, we did win state pretty much every year. So we got to go to regionals. Um, we did, uh, I didn't go, but uh, the team a year younger than us, the 80 Texans, they got, and they won, they went to Gothia Cup, Dana Cup in Europe. Yeah. So. That's awesome. So mm-hmm. did you play high school soccer as well? I did not. Okay. Was that just the choice um, that you made or was it not really available to you? Uh, it was. I entered um, after I came back. I went to Bolivia twice. So when I was 10 years old, then I came back 
you know, I came back, I did my six. And then during my seventh grade year, I was uh, about halfway through the year, I was sitting in science class and I get a page to come down to the office. And uh, when I get down there, my dad was there and he said, gather your things. You're going to Bolivia again. <laughs> like that? <laughs> you like, just like that. And so uh, I went back to my, you know, my classroom, gathered up all my things, told all my classmates goodbye. And yeah, the next thing I know, a day or or two later, I was on the plane to South America. Uh, I spent that time, uh, the first time I spent about two months, just the summer. This time I spent about a year to a year and a half. Oh, wow. So you actually missed the whole club season in Dallas to be. Yes. Okay. But it was def it, it it was definitely worth yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it was training five times a day. Um, you know, I, I was going to school in in Bolivia, learning to read, write Spanish. Wait, I mean five times was, a day? Yeah. How is that even possible? No, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, five times oh, a week. I'm sorry. That's what I, I thought, spoke. but I just wanted to clarify <laughs> for anyone that was listening that also got confused. <laughs> There you go. But hey, with the with the amount of time that you spend (laughs) playing soccer, you know, in in South America, you could you could probably add it up to being five times a day. (laughs) (laughs) So there's boys that play. There's boys that play from sun up to sundown. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. There's guys. Trust me. There's there's guys that play on the streets down there that. They're probably better than a few of the phenoms that we know and that are world renowned and famous that we've just never heard of because they've never had the opportunity. Yeah, they just never get that look. So every exactly. year there for that whole year, did you did you go to school? Like were you yes, I went soccer academy? How what was your lifestyle like? No, I went to school full time. Uh but you know, in, in, in Latin America, um in Bolivia and Brazil, the the two places that I've been, there's you can either go to school in the morning. They ha- it's like block scheduling. You can go in the morning, you can go in the afternoons, or you can go in the evenings. Okay. And so and so I would go in the mornings from like seven to eleven, then come eat lunch, and then after lunchtime, everybody goes and takes off and and goes to soccer practice. Yeah, the training. And we would just, yeah, we would just spend all afternoon training. After the coaches would leave, we would just stay there and play and play and play and play. So you went to just an all Spanish speaking school. Yes. And so you had to adjust real quick. Did you were you still able to like communicate when you first got there, or did it take some time for you to adjust again after being away for a year? Um, it, it was, um, I, I picked it up, I mean, I, I picked up Spanish pretty quickly. Uh, they were showing a lot of, it's funny how I learned Spanish. They were showing a lot of English movies down there at the time with Spanish subtitles. Oh, okay. So I was reading the subtitles, learning the words and, you know, hearing what they said in English. And that's how I kind of learned to make conversation that way. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Okay. So that year in Bolivia, then you come back home to Dallas, and when did you go to Brazil? That was during my sophomore year. So I did. Uh, okay. I did my freshman year in high school here, and then uh, same thing. About a month or two into my sophomore year, I went to Brazil, and uh, it, 
it's pretty interesting how I got down to Brazil. Uh, my Texans team was practicing in North Dallas at the time. And a gentleman showed up to our practice. He walked up. He was wearing a full uh, Brazil kit, jersey, and everything. And he was an older gentleman. <laughs> and he asked our coach and uh, my dad at the time, he asked Hassan and my dad, he said, hey, can I scrimmage with you guys? And they said, yeah, sure. And so they put him on the on the opposing team kind of opposite of me. And every time I got the ball, I was going at this guy doing different skill moves and you know, blowing by him, more. yeah, one on one and stuff. <laughs> well, after the after the scrimmage, he came over. He said, "Man, he goes, you play like a Brazilian." He said, "Would you like to go to Brazil?" And I, I was like, "Man, what is this guy talking about? You know, there's who, who is he? You know?" And uh, he said, "I want to." Yeah, he said, "I want to talk to your coach." So he goes over and talks to. Uh, Hassan he's like where's your dad I said well my dad's one of the coaches he and he tells my dad hey I want to take your son to Brazil and my dad you know he's all he's kind of like me a little skeptical at first well uh, come to find out that summer the 94 World Cup happened and and uh, you know coincidence you know that Brazil played Holland in the quarterfinals here in Dallas and this gentleman who had come out to play soccer with us called us up and he says, Hey, I've got, I've got in my living room, the coach of the Brazilian national team from 1982 and 1986 world cup. I've got the captain from 1970, Carlos Alberto sitting in my living room right now. You guys need to come over. And we drove over there and he wasn't kidding. He had these guys sitting in his living wow. room over in North Dallas, in North Dallas, and uh, Tele Santana, who was the Brazilian coach in 82 and 86, he was coaching Sao Paulo at the time in, in Brazil. He said, you know, I hear you're a really good player. You know, you're, we'd like to invite you to come down to Sao Paulo. And that's how it, that's how it came about. I, I uh, pretty much was on a plane not a couple weeks later down to South America to Brazil. Wow, that's amazing, man. You must have been like, okay my dreams are coming true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, it, it was, it was really, it, it was really weird because, you know, back then in the nineties, we didn't have the access to the social media to even to, you know, even to soccer on TV. Yes. And so the only, the old really is just, yeah, really the the only thing I knew about Sao Paulo was watching them on the Spanish channel playing the Copa Libertadores. Uh Uh-huh. You know, that's that that's it. That's all that I knew. But I knew that, hey, the guy that coached Sao Paulo coached the 82 and 86 Brazilian national team. And if you know your history, the 82 Brazilian national team was one of the best in history. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I really didn't understand how big of a... I really didn't understand how big of an opportunity I had or or what I had gotten myself into 
until we left out the we left out of the airport in in uh I think we landed in Minas Gerais and that's in kind of northern Brazil and the coach was there coach Tele Santana was there with his wife picking myself and you know my friend Roger Milo he's the one that took me down there he was there picking us up and just the swarm of people trying to get an autograph from this coach and I was like oh wow this this really is the Brazilian national team coach and then they were swarming his car and then on the way to his farm just leaving the airport at the gas station just people you know swarming his car and then uh, after we left this farm, we go to Rio. I, I'm in his condo for two weeks on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro. And people are down below his condo window just screaming Waiting. for him to come down and take an autograph, you know, sign an autograph, take a picture or whatever. Man, so you were living the life of a star. I, <laughs> I was. And uh, even after I got to Sao Paulo, um, you know, my family was was back here in Dallas. There wasn't much. There wasn't really Internet at the time. I think email was just coming around. So I would call home every couple weeks from Brazil on Sunday nights, let them know I was doing okay, shoot them an occasional email. But pretty much my entire time down there in Sao Paulo, I was under uh, I was under the wing of Tele Santana and. I picked up the nickname in Sao Paulo, Filho de Tele. Yeah, and that was that was that was Tele's son, and you know even I would, I remember uh, I remember one time Sao Paulo had gotten done uh, had just gotten done playing Boca Juniors in a Libertadores game, and we go down to the dressing room, me and a few of the guys from the youth team, and they lead me back there, and Tele's down there with some of the assistant coaches, and he's just like are you having a good time? Is everything okay? How's your experience? You know, do you need anything? He whips out a wad of Brazilian money and hands me some money. And the Brazilian guys down there were like, yeah, we just can't believe that, you know, you're, you're a gringo, an American kid that just is, is Tele's son now. I said, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what are the odds? It's like, yeah. he asked for, you know, a kid to just come under his wing. No. Like, you know, that was just completely by chance. And mm-hmm. you weren't even really a kid at that point. Like, you're 16 years old. So, yeah, I mean, you're pretty much grown. Like, for you, that must have been so cool because, like, not you've, you've had the experience of training in a professional environment in Bolivia. But now not only are you training in that environment, but you get to actually see, like, socially what it's like to actually be a professional. Right. That must have been just... I mean, even more eye-opening for you. Yeah, it was it was mind-blowing because when you get to Sao pa- when I got to Sao Paulo, we pulled up. Uh, I, I was in a a taxi, and we pull up, and we're at the front gates of the Morumbi Stadium. And uh, if you don't know, the Morumbi is like the second largest stadium in in Brazil, behind the Maracanã in Rio. And the the gates on the stadium where the buses go in, where they drop the teams off, were just enormous. And uh, the taxi driver pulls up to the front. There were some people from the club, you know, there to meet me out front. Uh, they grabbed my bags, walked me in, and uh, that's when I found out that all the players in this in the Sao Paulo system uh, basically live at the Morumbi Stadium. They had dormitories built into the side of the stadium. 
Really? And yeah, you eat, sleep, and uh, breathe there with you and your teammates. Huh. So how long did you live in Brazil then? Uh, the first, so I was there pretty much about a year and a half. Okay. Uh, I came back and finished my senior year here in, uh, in Plano. And then after my senior year, I went back to Brazil. So it was, I mean, it would have been impossible for you to play high school soccer because you were just doing so much back and forth. Yeah, it wasn't really part of my agenda at the time. Yeah, you weren't interested in that at all, which, you know, thinking back to, I mean, even like you're obviously a little bit older than I am, but even my time, like that wouldn't have been considered a logical path to like skip, you know, like club soccer and skip all that and, and take opportunities in other areas. So what was it about those opportunities that just assured you that you knew that was the right move for you? Um, I think just after being in around such a professional environment at such a young age, you kind of see and learn that what it takes to be an elite, I yeah. would say world-class or next level type of player or individual. So once you saw it, you were just like, all right, this is it. Like, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't need to worry about all this other stuff. It's really just uh, going to get in the way of what I truly want to do, which is be a professional. Right. So after you graduated high school, you moved back to Brazil again. Yeah, I went back to Brazil. I went back to Sao Paulo. Um, at the time, the the coach that I had known had already moved on from coaching. But you still uh, they had, had connections it. there? Yeah, but I still had connections there. And so um, actually one of the Sao Paulo players, uh, one of the goalkeepers, I, I befriended him when I was down there. When I came back and finished my senior year of high school here in Dallas, he came to the United States and lived with me and actually tried out for the MLS, which was their first year of the MLS in 1996. And he made it all the way to the final round of tryouts, and then they cut him. Really? How yeah, did he was a And what was the tryout structure? Were they just building rosters from scratch? Or how did Pretty it... much. Yeah. 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 I remember uh, it was you uh, showed up. There was a park in Richardson uh, across from the Owen Sausage Factory. You paid, <laughs> yeah, you paid like X amount of dollars and you filled out an application and you got to go out and try out in the combine and they gave you a number and you put it with a safety pin on your shirt and that's how they started narrowing down players. And So uh, did you go? No, I didn't. No. but No, I didn't. But this goalkeeper that was living with me, I mean, he was a, beast of a goalkeeper he would wake me up at five in the morning to go train five six days a week I mean work ethic like none other and uh, he made it to the last round of tryouts and they they didn't pick him up because you know they have an international rule I think three or four international players on the roster at the time and they told him basically since he wasn't famous he wasn't gonna make it so dang that's rough yeah so he stayed with you anyways, or did he go back? He did. He, he stayed with me, and uh, the funny thing about it was he he did soccer as a way for his, his mother and his little brother to get out of poverty in uh -huh. Brazil. He told me that, 
That was uh, it. Was that that wasn't really his passion? It was just mm-hmm. something that he had to do to get his family out of poverty. Uh, his second passion was bodybuilding and sports cars. And uh, this guy actually, I reconnected with him not too long ago. He called me up and told me that he was a uh, a multimillionaire now uh, hey. with his own. Yeah, with his own uh, foreign car dealership and up in Indianapolis and invited me to go down into the pits at the Indy 500 with him. So That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. So what happened with your t- your second go in Brazil? Like you were obviously going there to go pro. So what happened? Uh, I went to Sao Paulo. Uh, they told me I wasn't going to be able to make it there. Uh, after Sao Paulo, I went to uh, EC Victoria, and that's in Salvador. That's in northern Brazil. And I had met a few of their uh, directors and a few of their players at Dallas Cup. And they had told me, hey, you know, you're a great guy. Anytime you want to come to, uh, you know, train or play or whatever, here's our number. So I called them up and said, hey, I, uh, I, I'm in the – I'm in the country. I'd love to stop by. <laughs> they said, come on through. And uh, I ended up staying almost a year with EC Victoria in Salvador, uh, training, playing, um, you know, making friends. I didn't go to school. By then, I was already out of high school. Uh, I didn't think I was – the college thing wasn't for me. Uh, I had my mindset on being a pro. Uh, I stayed uh, with – uh, EC Vitoria for about a year, and then I went to Internacional down in the south of Brazil in Porto Alegre. And were you playing first team games? No, I was all all the time. Uh, I was with the youth academy. The highest I ever made was uh, to the junior program, the junior team, and the junior is like one step before you go pro. So is that the reserve team, or is it not? No, a- the juniors are pretty much. Uh, it's for the guys who are like 17, 18, 19, getting ready to turn pro. So it was just kind of like that bridge between the, you know, U18 Academy and the, the reserve team for the, for the first team? Right. And there's some guys that skip that age group. Like when I, went to, when I was with Sao Paulo, there was a, a boy there who was playing with me at the time. His name was Danielson. And... Within a matter of, I want to say, six months, they went, Sao Paulo went from picking this boy up off the street in Brazil to him making the first team, Sao Paulo team. And then I think a year and a half later, he was playing in the 98 World Cup. Oof. I bet they sold him for a nice little profit. Yes. That's awesome. But, they, but like, I mean, they, they literally, in, in Brazil, they would have tryouts in the middle of neighborhoods. Uh, they would take they would send two coaches with the clipboards, you know, some pennies and some bibs and a ball. And, you know, out of 100, 200, 300 kids, they would bring two back to train for a couple weeks and see how they fit in with the group. Because they know running those tryout sessions, they're going to find something. Yeah. Like it's a given that they'll find something that they can. Maybe it's not going to be, you know. A difference maker right but they'll find somebody that can play at the level they're looking for and yeah and that's what they do they they you know they bring these boys out they they let them play and they pick one two you know three of them to go back to the 
to the club and then they they put them in with a group for two three weeks maybe a month see how they do and you know like I said in Danielson's case he went from you know just being a neighborhood soccer player to playing in the world cup in a matter of years that's crazy so what kind of competition did you play in during that time was there a reserve league for like brazilian uh clubs or how did it work exactly no when i was uh the first time when i went down there when i was 15 uh most of the teams play locally they're kind of you know that they have their local leagues and then they would, just like here, they would get together at the end of the season and play tournaments, regional tournaments, national tournaments, and whatnot. Gotcha, gotcha. So what brought that whole period to an end for you? What made you decide to go back to Dallas? Um, I Actually, after I left Brazil my second time, I came to Dallas. I wasn't here very long, and I went to Germany. Okay. And I had a tryout with... Werder Bremen in Germany I didn't I was there for two weeks Uh, I didn't make the team there and I ended up getting picked up by a second division team called Eintracht Idesdorf which is outside of Hanover okay and I played with them for a season on their first team which was a great experience living in Germany yeah uh you know going to practice every day taking the train uh the train uh, living in an apartment in Hanover, I didn't speak much German. I never really learned much German while I was there, but uh, you know, and spending the entire entire season there was just it, it was great. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah, it was it was completely different from Brazil. You know, I had gotten used to the Latin American culture, and this was the German culture is just completely different. Oh, it's basically the opposite. Yes. Yes. <laughs> But you got to experience what it's like to be a full professional. Yes. So were you living on your own? Did you have other American teammates at all that you could, like, you know, hang out? No, I, no, I didn't. Uh, most of my teammates were all – they were actually all European, uh, German. Uh, at the time, they were still Yugoslavia. Um, we had some uh, Croats, some Serbians. Russians, but most of them were were of European descent. Did many of them speak English? Were you able to like actually, you know, form? Oh yeah, that's that's the thing about Germany. Most everybody speaks English in Germany. Okay, so you were still able to kind of adapt pretty well. Yes. Nice. And so you spent a whole season there. I did. How the season? I spent a season. Uh, I spent a season there, and then I decided I, – I came back after the season was over. I came back to the U.S., and uh, I thought I was going to try my hand in, in college soccer. Found out I did not have the grades to get into a D1 school here in the U.S. And so after that, I decided I was going to join the military. Man, that is a that is a – a very 180 shift right there. Definitely. It took a lot of my friends and family by surprise. Yeah. So, so what went into that decision for you? I think, um, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, at the time had soccer been, like I said, children today have a lot of different avenues 
to go pro, a lot of different platforms to expose, you know, their, their abilities. And I just think at the time I got a little in Germany, I was told that I wasn't big enough. I wasn't fast enough. I wasn't strong enough. Wasn't going to cut it. And, you know, I, I think as a, a lot. an adult, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking for something that I'm going to do or, or continue for the rest of my life. If I'm not going to be, you know, pursuing something that's not there. So I decided that, you know, the best opportunity or best thing for me was to, you know, join the military. So you just dove in. How long? Yeah. So you were actually deployed for a while as well, weren't you? Yes. How long did you spend uh, over overseas? I did two years in Iraq, two tours. Okay. Man, and so that was your mid-20s, basically. Yeah, early 20s, mid-20s. Yeah. So you didn't think that you could have taken soccer to another level at that point? Um, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't a priority on my list yeah. at the time. And I had the abilities. I just, for some reason, I didn't, didn't decide to pursue my dreams. Yeah. Well, you know, and it seems like you've kind of figured out how soccer fits into it the right way for you. So, yeah, I think that's what makes me a good coach today. Yeah. Tell me more. You know, I think I, I just, uh, you know, not letting my players give up on themselves, you know, not letting them uh, give up or get frustrated with themselves when they can't accomplish something. Just I, I think it's so important to be reassuring, be positive, be patient, you know, because success doesn't happen overnight. Change doesn't happen overnight. It takes a while. Definitely. Definitely. So as soon as you came back, uh, you, 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 you know, finished your time in the military, you come back to Dallas. Did you get into coaching right away? Or was there like kind of a transition period where you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next? Yeah, there was a little bit of a transition. And it was funny because at the time my dad was transitioning kind of out of soccer. I think he was getting burnt out. You had to go in there and carry the torch on, huh? <laughs> you know, he said, uh, hey, I have a team. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle him this upcoming season. And uh, we were at a practice, and uh, we were at a, an open practice. It was in June, and we were at an open practice. And uh, he met with the parents. He said, guys, you know, I just – I, I don't think I'm going to be able to I'm, I'm going to have this year what it takes to get you guys through the year, you know, mentally, spiritually, you know, the energy. And somebody said, well, can your son coach us? <laughs> and, you the family. <laughs> yeah. And so he said he looked at me, said, you want to coach him? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And that's kind of how I got my head coaching position. How old was that team? And, uh, they were 92, so most of them were 13 and 14 at the time. And I was, I want to say 26 or 27. Man, so you just jumped straight in, huh? What was the biggest challenge yeah. for you as a first, you know, first-time coach, period? It, there was no really challenge having grown up next to my dad, yeah. uh, being his apprentice, just seeing how he ran things, how he managed things, uh, 
I, um, you know, I grew up on the soccer fields with Hassan, uh, Marcio, another great coach. Uh, just being next to these guys day in, day out, you kind of see how they operate, uh, uh, you know, how they manage people, how they manage games, how they manage practices. You just you learn from them. And so it, it, it wasn't that hard of a transition. Yeah, so you felt pretty prepared to step into coaching pretty much right away. Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of waiting for my chance because up until then, I had just been kind of like, you know, hey, I need you to cover this game. I need you to cover this practice. I need you to, you know, do this, do that. I I, I never really was able to, you know, take the reins myself until then. So did you have them all the way through until they graduated? I did. Yeah, that must have been uh, yeah. a rewarding feeling for you, huh? It was. It was fun. Uh, I got to take them to their uh, uh, their college showcases their senior year, you know, communicate with the college coaches. And then that was kind of my first experience uh, of, of seeing what it was like, kind of taking somebody young, being with them, and then handing them off at the next level. Yeah. So, you know, because you felt like you had kind of experienced – what it took to coach at a high level already. Is that one of the reasons why maybe you didn't go and pursue your coaching badges right away? Yeah, I think so. Um, also, uh, I want to say ego had a lot to do with yeah. it. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything, you think you've seen everything, uh, and you really don't. Definitely. And, and I mean, that, that the coaching course we took together was, was great, eye-opening. Yeah. You know, it made me it made me hungry to want to do my next one. Sure. So there's always there's always something to learn. And, you know, even my dad told me that you're going to learn something every day. You know, you go out to the field every time I go out to the field with him. I learn something new. And anybody with that mentality is is going to, you know, go somewhere with what they're doing. You know, like if if you only viewed um getting your badges or your certifications as a chore, then you're not going to get anything out of it. And, you know, you might not even pass as a result of it because you're not really fully mentally invested into it, you know? So it might take you longer to, to accomplish those goals. And then even if you do accomplish them, well, what have you actually gained from it other than, you know, a piece of paper? So, right. you know, I, I, yeah, whenever I took that course too, it was, it was just like, all right, I I had done it before. I did the D originally under the old format when I was like uh, nineteen. I was like, man, I'm just gonna go ahead and knock this out right away, you know, while I was still in college. So I didn't really want to have to do it again under the new format. But um, I knew just like as soon as I walked in and saw the faces in there, all the familiar faces in there, I was like, ah, oh, this is this will be fun, you know, like I'm. Yeah. I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to develop some new relationships and it'll be a good time. So, you know, that I, I'm glad that, you know, we ended up taking it together. We had a good little group, didn't we? That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I was, yeah I, like I said, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the instructor. I learned a lot from, the, you know, my, my subordinates. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try and, and go knock that C out as soon as possible. Do you have plans to, to go ahead and do that too? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Well, hope- my, my dad 
my my dad you know he's he's got big i've got big shoes to fill on his end he's got his fa license from england he's got a uefa license uh he's got a picture up uh with him when he got his uh, FA license in England back in the eighties, his instructors were Bobby Robson and uh, uh, Alex Ferguson Jeez. at his coaching course. Oh, yeah. Legends. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know the FA coaching uh, diploma format is uh, pretty similar in that, you know, you go to, somewhere local to get like your level one and that may be like you know a couple of weekends over the course of a month or something like that and then you know you do your level two but then the level three is equivalent to the uefa b so Mm -hmm. um yeah i'm definitely trying to explore all that and just get as many of those certifications as i can just you know achieve everything that i possibly can because there's no reason not to, you know, and it's only going to, it's only going to give you more credibility as a coach. And, and also obviously you're only going to get better from it too. Right. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. But what you do with that knowledge is what's important. Right. What do you feel like you've taken away from that D course and have implemented into your coaching the most? Um, I think it made me smarter. I think it made me approach the game differently. Yeah. Um, yeah, take a more methodical approach to things. Just in the way that you um, break down, like, your training and assessment yeah. or in terms of training. Uh, training. and Yeah, training. Also, the, the tactical approach to games. Yeah. Uh, the way you communicate with players, the vocabulary you use with players. Yeah. I liked doing a lot of the role play stuff. I'm not a big fan of role play in general. Like, you know what I mean? If you ever had to do that in school and stuff, I hated it. Mm-hmm. But I was a big fan of it because, I mean, they're real situations you got to practice. You know, even just right. like the parent management circle that we did. Like, you know, if you were just sitting in watching it, maybe, you know, it looked kind of dumb. But, I mean... No, that no, that that that's great because I think that's what a lot of uh, that's the that's an issue that a lot of young coaches Definitely. run into is maybe getting choked up or maybe getting, uh, you know, uh, how do I say, you know, maybe scared in front of the parents almost. Yeah. To, I, I'm like, no, dude, you're you're the coach. Take control. Yeah, you Take be charge. Under control for sure. He, yeah. Yeah. Don't be scared. Let them know. And you only get you know you only get confidence in those situations by practicing them, whether it's actually right. doing it or you know role playing. You know, so like yeah, it, obviously when you role play, there's not going to be any consequences if you mess up. But like you know, if you can also get that experience and the confidence by just doing it over and over again. And, uh, Definitely. I mean, I used to I used to be scared to death to do parents meetings because I. I just wasn't a good public speaker. And, you know, over time, you just, you learn, you know, you learn to relax and just say what you need to say. And, you know, people respect you for that. Definitely. I think just being honest, people want you to be honest and just direct, you know, like, 
there there's no need to like sugarcoat anything or like try to like beat around the bush on certain things it's better just get to the point and explain your reasons why and just move forward but yeah I mean like you said earlier that's that's the one thing with young coaches that uh is probably the biggest challenge for sure is managing the parents because you think that you're just managing a team of players but really it's double or triple the workload if they have you know you know parents that are together or maybe their parents are split up so you got to manage both sides of that you know so that that presents challenges too but um yeah I mean it's just something that you develop through practice just like anything else it's just a skill that you have to work on like yeah growing up my dad told me he said uh he said son he goes you're you're gonna see he goes, you're going to have to coach the parents more than you coach the players. And I, at the time, I was like, what is he talking about? You know, just this is just, you know, I thought he was just an old right. man <laughs> spitting off at the mouth mad about yeah. something. But, you know, you you kind of learn and you see, hey, he wasn't wrong. You know, he's kind of right. You do have to mold them and train yeah. them. And all the best teams that I've ever been around, that I've ever seen, the the thing that I, all they all had in common was they had all had great sideline chemistry. Yeah, you know, from the players and from that's parents. the root of it, man. That's the root of it is <laughs> is the parent connection, you know, with one another, but then the connection to the coach and and then the the players' involvement in those connections as well. Like you know, it's 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 got to be all in sync or else it's just not going to work, you know? Like, right. That's, that's the one thing that I've, I've had to learn the hard way and I'm sure with all coaches, but that's so, you know, just kind of bringing everything full circle. Like I was happy with the D license course for that reason, because it addressed some of those things. Whereas the one that I took in the past under the old format didn't really at all. And it was more just kind of like, you know, older, outdated info talking about like you know what to do in in moments where a child is choking like how to perform cpr and like you know when a player gets injured like talking about the rice method and just like stuff like that that's obviously common sense you know and it's not really something i need Mm -hmm. to be wasting my time like sitting here learning but stuff that's actually practical and and you know relevant for me to be able to use right now so i thought it was good yeah i was happy that we all did it together and um that was during the the world cup too so we actually spent the final at what was it b-dubs buffalo wild wings or i can't remember right yeah i think it was sure yeah. remember we thought the professors weren't gonna let us watch it <laughs> i would have been so mad i think we all would have uh probably gone on strike or something Man, that that happened to me back in '98. Though I had to watch the '98 World Cup on World Cup final on delay because I was uh, I was helping coach the SMU camp oh, really? at the time, and uh, yeah, and they made all the campers. We had to watch it on on tape delay. I was so upset. Why did you have to watch it on delay? Because we had set we had training that afternoon, oh, and they they train. insisted. On, yeah, they insisted on not skipping the training session just to record the World Cup final, and then we'd all come oh, in and man, watch it's it not later. The same. I, I, 
It's just not. I mean, watching any soccer game or any sporting event on tape delay is not the same, and especially the World Cup final. That's why this quarantine is so hard, man. There's no new football to watch at all. But it's cool because I've been able to go back and watch some classics. Yeah, I know. uh, uh, Last week, I... It was funny. I caught myself and my sons watching uh, Messi's highlights from the 2005-2006 Champions League when he was number 30. I think he was probably 19 years old. It was one of his first games in Champions League, and he was just destroying Chelsea. He was so quick back then. Like, he's still still quick, but back then, oh, my goodness. Like, the the field at Stamford Bridge was – horrendous it looked like they hadn't taken care of the grass in months it was just nothing but mud and and he was just performing precision cuts with the ball between people like we even i've never seen before yeah i love it yeah i just watched um so i'm assigning my my boys my 09 boys match analysis assignments every week and so we had a Zoom meeting last week where we were able to get on and discuss. The week before that, I had just one-on-one FaceTime meetings, and I used that as an opportunity to do, like, performance evaluations too. Um, so, but now since I'm done with that, you know, we'll just group them all into one big team Zoom meeting. So this, so the first week, uh, or sorry, for last week, we did Barcelona versus Real Madrid from 2010, whenever Barcelona spanked them 5-0. At the Camp Nou. Right. Oof. That was a game. I remember exactly where I was sitting <laughs> watching that game. I was in college, and I was sitting at my dorm room desk just watching it on my computer. What a game, man. <laughs> and then um, this week is more of a recent classic, but an instant classic nonetheless. Barca versus PSG from Champions League 2017. Coming back from that 4-0 down away. Win six yeah. one in the second leg. Oh my goodness, what a game! Yeah, that was. I was actually uh, that game. It was three one, and uh, Barca was up. I said there wasn't much time left. My wife was yelling at me to go pick my son up from school around the corner, <laughs> and you and, missed the whole uh, thing. I I come back and I walk in the front door <laughs> and I see the score six no to way. one. <laughs> I said somebody's playing a joke on me. Oh right man! Now. Roller you know, I thought, I, yeah, I thought there was no way. I immediately I ran to the remote, you know, hit yeah. rewind right away, and I'm like, "What just happened?" Oh, you know, man. I I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah, I was probably in the same, a similar position, not in a dorm room, but watching it on my computer. And man, I just remember watching it live, like it just being such a roller coaster. You know, Barca going up 3-0 early in the second half. Then Cavani scoring that uh, half ball. I thought that was the nail in the coffin. The Cavani yeah. goal was the nail and in the coffin right for me. And then right after that, it. he gets a chance where he just makes a really nice run in behind. He gets behind PK, and he's 1v1, and you think, like, he's going to finish this. But he's just not able to open his body enough and just hits the keeper. So that could have been it right there. But even at that point, like it went from Barca needing one more goal to now they need three more goals. And yeah, so that was a 65th minute. And then they go, it was probably like 15, 20 minutes 
after that. It wasn't until like mid eighties where they scored their penalty from Messi. Uh, sorry. Whenever uh, Neymar, Neymar hit the yeah, free kick. What a free kick, but, Oh my goodness. And he didn't even really have a good game. He was trying to do too much. The whole team was trying to do too much, but man, that was just one of those moments where like, you just gotta, you just gotta be glad that you witnessed it. You know, like yeah, everything just happened for them. Then they got the penalty um, from uh, Marquinhos fouling Suarez, Neymar buries it. And then Sergio Roberto with that little touch at the end. What a game. Yeah, I also awesome. just watched on YouTube uh, Italy-France from the 06 World Cup final and then France-Brazil from that quarterfinal. Whoa. Talk about, talk yeah, about both, like, both. a team. like That whole game was basically a team of veteran legends. Like, both teams. Yeah. Both, both those games were heartbreaking for me because – the quarterfinals, I wanted the Brazilian team to win. And, of course, France yeah. won. In the finals, I wanted France to win. And, of course, Italy won. France were so stacked that year, though. They they were. And I thought for sure they were going to win the final. when yeah. uh, you know, they scored early. Zidane scored a Paneca off, off, a, off a PK in the World Cup final. I couldn't um, believe my the eyes. Like... I, I said, "What did this guy just do against Buffon in the World that Cup guy, final? He just he that just... guy is cold blooded. <laughs> he does not care. Like, he'll, he'll stand up to any moment. Like nothing's happened. Yeah, that that was incredible to me. Just to to pull that off in a World Cup. Yeah, final. it's crazy. And then and then for him to turn around and get red carded. Oh man, what a what a World Cup final yeah, that was. Crazy. That was the first one where I." I think I really remember like paying attention to all the games. So okay. I'll always remember that one. Like I thought that, that not only was the world cup itself good, you know, the games were quality, but also just like mm-hmm. the world cup ball was sick. Like that was probably the best world cup ball ever. And then all the boots during that time. Like if you look at the boots now, man, I'm just wondering what's going on. You know, <laughs> I can't even. I can't even. Yeah, fit into they're them. so weird. <laughs> I, I went to a, I went to soccer corner not long ago, and I I was trying on shoes, you know, and I'm I'm trying to be hip with the times <laughs> and keep up with the younger generation of players, and I just I couldn't do it. I had to go back to yeah, the Copa. Nothing good, <laughs> man. There's nothing good. I I put I put one pair on. I said, how do these kids? get around in these things on yeah, the field. They're not comfortable either. Like so many of them are just so like inflexible that I just don't know how people actually wear them and play. I don't either. And uh, I you know, I let my son try on a pair of my copas. He said, "Dad, these are really comfortable." I said, "These are what soccer yeah. shoes are supposed yeah, to feel that's like." Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right, man. I know it's getting late here. You know, we've had a good chat, and definitely I think we should do it again sometime very soon. But before we, you know, send you off, I just wanted to ask you a few questions, kind of review and and send people out with a a little message uh, on your episode here. So first one is, what's next for you? Like, what what are you planning to do with your teams? You know, do you ever plan to maybe focus only on coaching and 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 you know, not 
do your full-time job as well or you know what's what's in store for you um well right now you know i i work in a i work in a hospital and with the with the pandemic going on i i feel kind of obligated to spend most most of my time helping with that uh you know i was a army guy so public service is really big for me serving others is a you know part of who i am and part of my personality and my upbringing uh so right now i'm going to continue to focus on that uh soccer has always and will always be my passion um I, i'm going to stay in touch with my my players and my teams as much as i can virtually over the next course of the few weeks i know this is going to pass pretty soon and we're going to have to pick up where we left off. My 2011 girls were getting ready to go to Supercopa this summer in Cincinnati. Um, we're not sure if, you know, what's going to happen with that, but whatever we have to, you know, we have to be ready for whatever life throws at us. Um, I'm going to, you know, I, I, I like having a day job and I like having, uh, you know, my soccer in the evening times. Um, my father growing up gave me a lot of good advice. And, uh, so I, I just will continue to follow his advice and his expertise and his knowledge and just kind of continue to, you know, go my, go my way, man. Love it. So what are, you know, looking back on your whole upbringing, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in, what have you used to kind of overcome those challenges and just keep going? Um, as far as uh, uh, challenges, I think for a lot of the, I, I want to speak, you know, to a lot of the players or for a lot of the players out there. Um, when you get into those uh, teenage years, your late teens, just staying focused. Just staying focused at what you want to do and who you want to be and what you want to become and what your goals are. And uh, just keeping that mindset and that focus and uh, getting those things accomplished, uh, not giving up on on your goals and not giving up on your dreams. Yeah, definitely. So why do you think people, you know, when they have those dreams and maybe they don't work out right away, why do you think that they – aren't able to overcome and, and just continue to push onward because there's so many things to be distracted Mm. by this day and age. There's so many outside influences. Uh, there's so many negative influences. Uh, you just have to learn to tune those things out. Just really maintain, maintain a positive mind frame, a positive mindset, a professional mindset and uh, keep yourself yeah, in check. Definitely. So what is your definition of greatness? Oh man. I mean that it can be defined by a lot of things. I, you know, don't think it has, you know, the gr- greatness can, there's a lot of people in history that are great. You know, just, I think it's the difference that you make in the world, honestly, you know, uh, being a good human being, uh, down to earth, humble, 
you know, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be poor. You don't have to be good at sports. You just have to be a well-rounded human being. Yeah, man, that's the definition I'm trying to live by. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to make an impact and uh, create a legacy that lives on past me. And I think that I would totally agree with your definition of greatness. So I like it. Um, what piece of advice would you yeah. give to your younger self? Um, yeah. stay focused, stay goal oriented and stay positive. Yeah. So you pretty much have answered this already, but if you have anything else to add, what message would you like to leave people with that, that are listening right now? Um, just no matter what you do, uh, what you do in life, what it is you want to do, just do it to the best of your ability and, uh, you know, stay focused on on the end result and what's going to come of it. That's beautiful, man. Thanks for sharing your story, Abdul. It was a pleasure uh, having this chat with you and, you know, definitely hope to see you back on the pitch very soon. Is there any way that uh, people can get in touch with you if they want to, you know, kind of learn more about your whole story and what you're doing? Yeah, um, you know, I have my... Uh, Facebook account, uh, my first name, Abdul, A-B-D-O-L, last name, Adlu, A-D-L-O-O. Uh, my phone number is 469-337-6950. Um, yeah, if you want to text, uh, you got any podcast going on, I don't mind jumping on. Yeah, you've been a good guy. Uh, this this was this was this was my first ones and it was it was kind of fun and interesting so I awesome. liked it and I'm always open I'm always open to Heck chat yeah yeah I had a lot of fun um, too we'll definitely do it again sometime you got a lot of good stuff to share and maybe next time we'll talk a little bit more about coaching specifically and and uh, you know just anything else that's going on in the world at that time okay cool. sounds thanks good again, Sean Abdul. guys thanks for listening. Um, this was episode number 13 with Abdul Adlu. Uh, be sure to subscribe, like, comment, share, all that good stuff. We'll catch you next time. Peace.